0: What's going on, guys? Michael here, Energy 360 Network by Enercom. I'm excited to be bringing you this awesome interview with Adam e. Energy Principal, Tisha Shuler. But before we get to that, I need to do a couple shameless plugs. First, if you're not subscribed to the 360 Digital Closing Bell on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, please stop this interview, pause it, but finish it, pause it. But please go subscribe, read, rate, review, subscribe. The 360 Digital Blood Closing Podcast is the best way to stay updated on everything energy finance and EFT. If you're an avid follower of EFT Twitter, you will not want to miss this show. We just dropped our week ahead in oil and gas where I talk about negative pricing from a trading perspective. We check out if actual mineral rights owners will get negative mailbox money. Hint, they won't. We check the clauses. We go over our week ahead and energy stew covers everything from the International Newsday. Also, please check out the world's greatest website, www.oilandgas360.com. It is quite possibly the best place if you want to find out everywhere for oil and gas news. They have so many great interviews for some of the top executives around the. Feel Just like this interview you're about to hear with Tisha Shula, who, like I mentioned, is the principal of Adamateen Energy. Adamateen Energy is the top social risk consulting company. And Tisha Shula, who is the principal, works with companies of all ranges to help them future-proof their company. She is an awesome person. I love every time I get to chat with her. And this interview was no different. We cover really everything that's happening in this post-COVID-19 world. She's one of the experts when it comes to how to navigate this crazy time. And we also touch on, if you're a millennial, this one's up for you. I mean, sure to get this in for it. But we talk a little bit about how this impacts specifically us and the millennial generation as we sort of are the ones that are taking the brunt of it. Again, this is an awesome conversation. If you're all interested in ESG, I please recommend you check out this interview. It's with me, Tisha Schuler, who I mentioned obviously is the principal and founder of Adamateen Energy. Dan Genovese, who's the director of consulting and intercom, and as always Stuart Turley. And with that, I'm actually going to go ahead and turn it over to Stu to start this
1: off. Well, good morning, guys. And uh, Tisha, we sure appreciate you. We've uh, w- Where are you at? You're up in Boulder? I'm up in my
2: mountain cabin, uh, about 30 minutes west of Boulder.
1: Oh, nice. Dan, you're up in uh, Colorado as well, too. That's
3: correct. I'm in Centennial, uh, down southeast of Denver. It's a good
0: place. I'm uh, I'm up here in Denver, just uh, just a little north. But uh, uh, like Stu mentioned, Tish, we really we really appreciate you taking some time out of, out of your you know really busy schedule to sit with us because, I, you know, in this in this time period that we're we're in right now, I think you know specifically what your background is and what your company Adamatine does is, is 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 can really help you know, the industry navigate through these really challenging times. And there's so many questions we really want to ask you about that. But, you know, before we get into that, I just, you know, if you could give everybody for, for the people listening, just a kind of a quick, you know, your story and a quick overview to how you got and, and how you got to, you know, add Adam and team.
2: Sure, sure. I'll start with where we are today. I founded mm-hmm. Adam and about five years ago with a focus on future proofing um, oil and gas companies against rising social risk. I'm sure we'll talk about what that means. Uh, Before that I ran the Colorado Oil and Gas Association for five and a half years during the first chapter of contentious uh, opposition uh, to oil and gas and changing demographics and politics in Colorado. And then before that I was an environmental consultant um, who was uh, both uh, liberal and skeptical about the oil and gas industry in general. And then one chapter preceding that, I was actually an environmental activist with uh, a fairly hostile worldview toward oil and gas. So my evolution has come uh, pretty far, but my perspective still encompasses all of those uh, worldviews. And I live a lot of them here west of Boulder, uh, now where I'm half hippie and half uh, passionate oil and gas industry advocate.
0: So, so how did that, you know, that's usually not two words you see in the same sentence, hippie and oil and gas. You know, you mentioned that transition you made to, to, to you know, running uh, the Colorado Oil and Gas Association. How did that shift take place? Was there something that, that you saw or how did that happen?
2: There's so many pieces and steps along the way, but the mm-hmm. fundamental underlying theme of all that is that I'm a scientist. I, I studied environmental scientists and geology. And at some point in your life, you have to make the decision whether you're going to let your worldview or science drive what you understand about the world and so i made the decision to let science drive my thinking and as i explored my passion about the environment my interest in addressing climate i really dug in to energy in all its forms as well as the demand for energy around the world um, and that led me through very small steps along the way to first value the role oil and gas plays, then to understand its longevity and importance, and then ultimately to wanna build the bridge. Uh, For example, I believe that addressing climate change expediently requires including the oil and gas industry. So for me, these are not contradictory, Um, but it, it puts me out in the world in a way that I have to be consistently translating and building bridges.
0: Yeah, and I and and you, you. One of the the coolest things I think you write is this is this series, which is called um, that you can find on, on Adam Ateen's LinkedIn page. Which is the, this idea of both things can be true, and I think a lot of times people forget that that you know there can you know there's not very many contradictory ideas, and a lot of things can play very well together.
2: Yeah, and I think probably everything we'll talk about today during this pandemic time, this oil price collapse time is more easily navigated if we're willing to let two things be true at the same time Um, that we can have negative oil futures and also a perhaps endless demand for oil in the future and both of these things are true and that will give us a more skillful and a broader viewpoint to think about how to get through these times so I'll, i'll take your cue michael and throughout our talk I'll. I'll try to tee up where we often have to face contradictory facts and emotions in order to be skillful in how we move forward.
0: Oh, that's awesome. And, you know, before we get too into that, I know Stu's been, been dying to ask you some questions about your book. And, and that's one of the, another cool things about you is you wrote a book. So Stu, I'll
1: let you take it from here and, 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 and get the book questions done. First off, Tisha, thank you for writing the uh, accidentally adamant by Tisha Shuler. I mean, that was a great read. And so if anybody uh, hasn't understood your background, because you're unique in a hippie and oil and gas, and I love the fact that you also go in and it's not necessarily uh, oil and gas, but it's energy, it's poverty. They all go together. And so your neighbors, I thought you were crazy when you went to leave the oil and gas um commission there and and so what you've had adversity you've been able to survive fires disasters with your husband and his fire uh, crew you're ready for this disaster what do you think is going to happen and what kind of leadership do you think we need to have for this uh, covid disaster we're in right now?
2: i love the way you framed that Stu, because I do feel like surviving a fire that took out 169 homes in our community and a flood that took out every bridge in our 10 mile canyon and half the road. I do feel like when this uh, pandemic started that followed quickly on the heels of the oil price collapse, uh, chapter one, uh, I felt like I know how to do this. I know how to manage my fight or flight reaction. And I also know that there's always another side that when you're in the peak of the crisis, I know because I've experienced it that you will look back and it will become a memory. And that is what helps me navigate this moment. First to be very conscientious of this perpetual state of fight or flight we're in, which doesn't necessarily bring the, out the best of us and as individuals. And the second is to know that I will look back on this moment. And so The the way I like to advise our clients and our partners about this moment is to be conscientious that there is a future and there is a looking back on this moment and crafting the path that you will be proud of. And that requires some presence of mind, some mindfulness, and then getting out of the fight or flight mode so we can say, how do I construct a path forward? that is keeping one eye to the future and what's coming and is very supportive of the people around me today. And and ironically, I wouldn't have known how to do that if I hadn't lived through these crises. And so another thing to remember is that leaders are made during these moments. And so it's actually, there is a gift in all of this for each of us so that later we will have lessons to impart upon our kids, our colleagues, our teams, when we're on the other side of this as well. And two new generations are having their first major crisis, crisis, and it will shape them. And in many ways, I think it will shape them to be stronger.
1: You know, uh, Tish, I could go on for hours on your book. And I, uh, one of the things that kind of hit home uh, before I turn this over to Dan and the ESG uh, kind of questions was, I kind of make fun of, and I, it kind of hurt a little bit on your book, because I make fun of the green movement, you know, cause I'm in oil and gas and I believe in oil and gas to help the poverty issue. You kind of said, let's not take sides. Let's go work. I liked your, uh, let's go do work together. I really liked that instead of making fun of the other side. So thank you for your your bottom line on the, on the book. That was very good. So uh, I'll go ahead. And toss it over to ESG because this really set the foundation for what your company is doing and what's needed in our industry right now.
3: Sure. Well, listen, it's great to have you. And, and, uh, you know, my, my questions uh, kind of from a broad standpoint is, you know, where uh, how do you see the overall economy? I mean, that was, that was, Listen, that, that was great. Uh, that, that's a great mindset, what you just said, uh, Tish, in, in terms of we, we should all just take a deep breath, uh, know that there, the sun's going to come up tomorrow and, and uh, we can recover. Um, uh, so, so with that in mind, how do you see the overall economy coming back? Uh, you know, let's just, let's just start out at the 40,000 foot level. Uh, love to get your thoughts on that.
2: Yeah, I'm pacing myself, um, our company, Adam and Dina, and our clients for a long, slow fits and starts recovery. So this is both a very personal pacing because we have to keep in mind that there's going to be these upsteps periodically so that we can handle them gracefully. If we expect a linear um, uh, line out of this, I don't think we're going to get it. So to stay uh, on, on our toes and leaning forward into what happens, I think expecting fits and starts and setbacks is just mission critical to our ultimate risk that's one part the second thing is i i have been advising our our teams to always be asking two questions what's next everything's unprecedented so you could ask what's next every day and there will be new potential out there and and this will be a time for the nimble to be successful so what's next and if we have the resources today what opportunities are out there for us and that is also to keep that one eye on the future, and to position ourselves to be opportunistic and to think about uh, if we could take advantage of things. What would they be? Would it be acquisitions? Would it be hires? Uh, would it be a pivot and positioning? And so I th- I don't know what recovery looks like, but I know it will be challenging. It'll be fits and starts, and the winners will be forward-looking and nimble. And I'm interested in helping inform and 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 construct that kind of creative response. So that on the other side of this, when the whole world looks different, and we wonder how we ever lived in a pre-pandemic world, uh, that our companies are at the front of that and looking, looking back and saying, yep, yep, we're ahead, we're ahead of what's coming next.
3: I, I, so, uh, we, we, that's great, thank you. Um, what should oil and gas companies, so you know, kind of from the overall economy, uh, let's talk oil and gas, uh, you know, a- a- absolute commodity price collapse. Uh, I argue that, uh, uh, they, they're, uh, that kind of the, the whole Russia-Saudi-OPEC cuts, was that was just a big head fake to Washington to kind of get uh, D.C. off their back and, and doing something more drastic. It seems like it's kind of back Maybe maybe uh, got, got to the president's attention. I've been arguing for tariffs uh, on imported oil. Um, so, uh, what's next for energy company executives? How did, how do they manage, um, both the business operation and then, uh, kind of the communication, whether it's capital markets, whether it's the communities that rely on them for jobs, whether it's the employees, uh, that work for them that are scared to death about losing their job.
2: Yes. Great question. I'll take that in two phases. The first is today. And the oil and gas industry, because we got hit by the price war before uh, most of the country was working at home or in stay at home orders, the industry had a sense of having its own crisis, its own economic crisis. And that was true, but four weeks later, the whole economy is in crisis. And so one of the things I think is really important is for oil and gas companies to take their best foot forward that we see during any hurricane, any natural disaster and say we are civic leaders in this community and we will engage in the response the recovery and the rebuild that follows i personally experienced during the colorado floods in 2013 the oil and gas industry raised 2.3 million dollars in 48 hours just in colorado and it was in at the same time companies spontaneously put together crews with pickup trucks and personnel to go out and dig communities out and this is the kind of response that we need to a historic health and economic crisis in our community so i think a really important thing right now that's hard for executives and leaders within companies to keep an eye on because our economic pain is so acute, is that there is a transcendent opportunity to engage in civic leadership. So that's one thing that I'm really pushing right now. And that takes one eye to the future kind of perspective. We have an acute economic crisis and we we are members of a society that need our leadership. Then the second piece of this is thinking about what post-pandemic energy looks like lots of speculation about the future of travel the future of work the future of transportation and all of those things have the best and brightest and innovative minds thinking how are we going to make the world better and how are we going to be central to that leadership now because my love for the oil and gas industry runs so deep i do not think there is any industry better positioned with the brightest minds the R&D teams, the resources, even in this economic crisis, to articulate what the energy future could look like. So this is a really different framing than what a lot of us are talking about in the industry right now, which is how do we survive negative oil or $20 oil? Uh, What I'm interested in is the conversation that says, as we reimagine leadership, here's what we have to offer and transcending some of these ideas that might be fighting, fighting for our old place. I don't think that will, I don't think history will be kind to anybody fighting for the old order or fighting for their old market share. But I do think there is infinite room for creative ideas. And I personally don't think there's any world without oil and gas. And so what I think is the opportunity is to reimagine how we articulate our role in the future. Even if in some ways it looks similar, it's recast as part of the new world order that's coming
3: yeah <clears throat> the the uh, uh, so so I'll ask you i kind of mentioned you know uh, my, my policy uh in, in I, I co-authored it with uh, uh w- with a great gentleman who's who who's a contributor to a whole bunch of media um it is, you know tariffs that that are uh, and, and and that's that that's to protect from the unfair trade of, of national oil companies and uh, uh, bad actors, I guess, is what I want to say. Do you have any uh, federal, state policies uh, to kind of help mitigate oil and gas uh, here in the U.S.? Because I'll say this, I, you know, I think a lot of the clients that we work with, listen, it'd be great, uh, and, and I think they want to do as much civic good during this time, uh, but when, you're, uh, when those forward contracts uh, at, at 50 bucks a barrel uh, run out, uh, you're, you're stuck with shut-in, decline production, and selling into a market that's uh, not break-even. So you know, maintaining that payroll is going to be a challenge too.
2: Sure, many of the industry's brightest minds are working on these market dynamics and interventions, and those are not an area of my expertise. So I will leave those to you, Dan, and and your compatriots. What I am keeping an eye on that I think is part of keeping one eye to the future is some of the trends in social risk are still in play. So social risk is the political policy and community opposition to oil and gas. And while it would be lovely if that went away during this time, of course it hasn't. And the overwhelming opposition to oil and gas that was there before continues to be in play and is influential. And so anything that the industry is doing right now that looks like it's trying to take what people could negatively characterize as a handout or a subsidy or is going to be really accelerated in how people are, discuss it. And so what, what I'm watching, and I think we have to be very careful about, is how the industry participates in those and anything we can do to transcend partisan politics is important. I'll give you one example. In the, in the last stimulus negotiations, there was an expectation that the Strategic Petroleum Reserve would buy oil, which of course is a great idea. I didn't expect it to be controversial but it became a negotiating tool with a a request that airline bailouts be tied to decarbonization targets. And those two things got traded such that neither happened. That was a huge signal to me that climate and decarbonization were going to stay front and center in all of the subsequent negotiations around stimulus. And I think we'll continue to see that in the stimulus being negotiated now. For me, that's a big red flag for the oil and gas industry to be very cognizant of how companies and trades articulate what they need. It has to be part of reimagining the energy future and participating in the future, not defending historic market share, because anyone who opposes the industry doesn't have any interest in opposing market share, but we all have a shared interest in reinventing the energy future in a cleaner and more sustainable way. So that's my uh caution around how current politics could backfire once social risk becomes our dominant concern again
3: yeah, and I think that's you know uh all all understood that that there will be trade offs if it's legislative tariffs don't require an act of Congress it can be uh uh an executive order so I think that's why uh, I, I think I kind of tend tend to lean toward that with with uh uh, within the executive order, uh, kind of being able to, 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 uh, help it. I, I think, um, what, one of the, one of the, uh, w- w- one of the things I want to talk about is you, you say that, uh, this, if a uh, notion of future proofing and, and how that, and we're kind of starting to touch around the edges of, um, social risk and ESG, um, for oil and gas, uh, I wrote an article uh, a little while ago, or maybe it was on an interview that we did with, with somebody, that ESG is uh, definitely one of the pieces of messaging that they can be proactive, oil and gas companies can be proactive at right now. Um, what do you think about that idea? Are, are people willing to listen to an ESG message?
2: I think you're absolutely right. So what we're observing is that for the international oil and gas majors and the world's largest investment funds, there is no break on ESG. In fact, one could argue that the crisis may be accelerating ESG pressures as um, a dozen European countries have committed to make clean energy part of their stimulus as several uh, investment firms, um, some of the largest in the world, uh, BlackRock, for example, have said they will provide no break on ESG during this time. And then, of course, just this week, BP announced the, the broadest net zero goals of any company so far, one could argue, in response to ongoing investor pressure. So, for the, large, the largest companies and the largest asset managers, ESG is not pausing. And one could argue that they now have to defend any investments in traditional energy under extreme pressure, uh, particularly in Europe. But we will see it here for clean energy investment. Um, so, so I think that that's, that is a, an umbrella that we can't forget. Now for the uh, large independent EMP, uh, for the midstream in the US, I think they have four to nine months before pressure returns to them because the economic and remote work challenges are so acute that there's just a reality factor. But four to nine months isn't very long, that's tomorrow in uh, ESG planning. And then the really interesting, to be determined question is what about the small EMP, the small midstream that's private equity backed and ultimately was just starting to see ESG pressure. I think they have a little longer. I think they may have a year. And because there's gonna be so much consolidation and transformation in the industry, ESG does not need to be at the top of their list. Now, while companies are laying down drill rigs, but keeping key staff, ESG is absolutely something they could be working on. In eight weeks, they can get more done with teams and we're working with companies doing this, so we know firsthand, then they could have gotten done in eight months because all of the operations and EHS personnel are available. So they can gather data, they can make plans, they can write reports. Uh, So what might've taken a long time can get done quite quickly. And so we do recommend those companies that that have uh, reduced their drilling program, which is everyone, or perhaps is under some paused construction, if you're a midstream company, this is a great time to get that work done and be ahead of the curve, particularly if the investors make that a condition of the next level of financing or funding.
3: Yeah, I can say, you know, from Stu and I's uh, perspective, from Entercom's perspective, <clears throat> we've probably uh, taken in uh, more ESG work w- within the last You know 30 days 45 days from clients uh you know whether it's uh doing a corporate social responsibility report whether it's uh adding a sustainability tab to websites and creating that content uh and and and, uh uh to to entire programs uh for uh uh, you know midstream companies uh, i love to hear that
2: yeah i love to hear that dan because um COVID response offers such a unique ability to engage in the ESG, the environmental, social, and governance to participate in a really unique and meaningful way. And we have a great opportunity to be mindful about that investment and engagement and then capturing it for, for communicating in ESG report. So I, I love hearing that, that companies are engaging with you in that way because it means they're mindful of this opportunity.
3: Yeah, and, and I'll say this, and I'll, I'll get your thoughts on it. I mean, uh, I, I've, I've argued uh, in, in a couple of articles that, um, yeah, there's a fear that ESG becomes kind of a, a BDS movement against uh, energy companies, uh, and, and maybe ESG isn't comprehensively applied uh, to other companies. Uh, when, when you think about it, how do you think? and this is a side note, this is related to the pandemic, this is, uh, uh, you know, h- how do you think ESG is going to be applied holistically across all markets? Um, when you look at, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe companies, uh, uh, whether they're uh, a Chinese company, do you think capital is going to, going to begin to start looking at them and saying, hey, you need to clean it up, uh, you know, you need to tighten it up, the government needs to come more clean, uh, and, and start pulling back investment from that um, uh, based on kind of this virus and, and you know, where, where it originated and whatnot.
2: So pre-pandemic, there was a very clear trend originating in Europe, moving to Canada, and it was really taking root here uh, in a meaningful way at the end of 2019, which was raising the bar in a, I think, in a direction that can't go backwards, expecting oil and gas companies to raise their game. And the way we were looking at that and thinking about that is that the no- new norms were being established and that, that would become the price of doing business, the expectation. We were just starting to get queries from, for example, private equity, whose institutional investors were putting pressure on them to put pressure on their portfolio companies. So it was just starting to trickle down into even the smallest EMP and midstream. Uh, privately held companies in the U.S. I think that pressure returns. And then what happens is ESG becomes a differentiator. So there will always be those who will divest from oil and gas. That's not our target investment market. But those who know they need to invest, know there's a future, but needs a rationale for investing in the best actors. That's where I think ESG is going to be a differentiator. On the international scene, the international agencies were making very bold, and in many cases, I think misguided efforts to defund fossil fuels for developing economies. Now, what that means is not that coal isn't developed in an African nation that needs energy for manufacturing. That just means China or the Asian Development Bank goes in and funds it. So there, the, that discrepancy was just about to really, I think, reach a relevant narrative, which is the World Bank, the UN have to participate in differentiating good and, and uh, badly produced fossils so that they didn't just leave this massive hole for development. But the point you make will always be a massive point of tension, which is if the US and Canada and European operators are holding themselves to such a high standard. Then many of the NOCs globally can just go to everything else with no constraint, and I, 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 of course, argue, uh, particularly in the UN, European, World Bank spaces, that we cannot leave the oiling. We can't leave oil and gas to to other operators, uh, particularly NOCs that don't have any constraints. Oh, that when will we get back to that? It might be a year or two.
3: But you just think it's on pause and that, 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 uh, that there'll be this ongoing pressure to bring them into the fold you know, one way or another uh, into kind of the responsibility, sustainability fold?
2: I think so. I don't think we can ignore it. So one of my areas of interest is energy uh, at scale for developing economies. Those economies are going to develop and there's no such thing as leapfrog frogging industrialization and manufacturing. The data is abundantly clear. That narrative is incorrect and has been debunked. So in a world where developing economies throughout Asia and Africa are bringing in energy at scale, it's going to be coal in the absence of another plan. And I think we were almost ready globally to to, uh, have that conversation. So it will return. It will return once we move out of massive global economic recession and back into a recovery and rebuild phase.
0: You know, I, as the resident millennial on the panel here, I, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't get your thoughts on, A, you know, for a millennial who might find himself out of a job, if you have any advice for them, But then now for a millennial who might have a job and might find that the, the, the three people between them and their next promotion is now wiped out. Is there any encouragement you can have for either of those sides of people?
2: Absolutely. The the first thing I want to articulate is that the millennial workforce is the most important civically, politically, and financially relevant generation, period, in raw numbers and economic impact, and in the way that we're structuring our life. And, And however we recover from the pandemic and the economic recession that will follow, it will be ultimately led in creativity and energy by millennials. So the first thing I want to articulate for all of the oil and gas leaders and managers out there is the biggest risk we face after we address economics is losing our millennial workforce. So the millennial workforce was under extreme social pressure to not work for the oil and gas industry as an industry of the past. I have heard this from hundreds of oil and gas workers all over North America. Tell me why I should stay. So we do need to very clearly articulate the importance and role of millennials in our future to them. So reach out to your millennial workforce and keep in touch with any millennials out there that you did have to sever as part of this. We know that millennials have been the most laid off generation right now. So we wanna keep up with them because they are our future, absolutely. And speaking to millennials, I would like to make the case, and I do make the case to millennials all the time, stay in the oil and gas industry. We have the innovation, the scale, the budgets. The, we are the future of however we reimagine what life looks like post-pandemic. And that the creativity and the change agent in all that will be the millennial workforce. Now, very pragmatically speaking, two things. If you still have a job, you need to be communicating proactively with your boss. Old people like me want someone to call us. They want us to say, this is what I'm doing. This is, this is what I'm doing this week. Do I have the right priorities? Is there anything I can do to make your life easier? Very simple. Do it every week. Keep your visibility up and your communication on steroids. If you're in the position where you are not employed right now, use this time wisely. Ponder how you will look back at this time and have used it. So that might mean using a, learning a new work skill. It certainly means networking in every way. And perhaps it means learning Italian. Whatever you do with this time, do it well. Do it, invest in yourself and your future. You will not look back and say, I wish I watched more Netflix. But you will look back and say, I wish I'd spent more time with my partner or my kids. I wish that I had invested in skills. I wish I would have written that blog I've been talking about. Mm-hmm. So use this time well with an eye to how you'll look back at yourself and that you'll be proud of the person you are during this time.
0: No, that's awesome. And, and, and we're here at honestly about the 45 minute mark. So I just want to, uh, first, thank you for the time that you've given us. You've been extremely generous. And second, you know, to Stu and Dan, are there any other final questions um, that you guys have for Tisha before before we before we let everybody go here?
3: Yeah, I, I, uh, I, I'd I'd love to ask you, but I but I know we're we're uh, we're running long on time. Uh, just a couple of examples, maybe suggestions of, of what you see, or, or examples over the last couple of weeks of good ESG messaging for oil and gas. Um, Kind of future proofing activities that you've seen that have, that have been good mm-hmm. great question
2: good great great question i think bp making their announcement in the middle of all of this was smart way to say our work goes on we're part of the future we continue total did something similar in france while, while they had workforce reductions they did not make any cuts in their new energies business. So although those are uh, international majors and the bar is set uh, differently for them and the resources are different from them, it foreshadows a message that every oil and gas company can say, which is we're here for the long haul. We're participating in the recovery and we will be at the forefront of the rebuild, whatever that looks like, because we're co-creating it with our communities.
1: And um, Tisha, thank you very much again. Uh, I know that this uh, virus is almost like when you're walking on a trail and a bear uh, stops you and you have to uh, fight the bear. We're fighting a bear right now. Um, What do you think this is going to do for the, is it 1.3 billion folks that are without power that we need to help get off of poverty? What do you see for the changes on that?
2: Yes, I am worried about our North American-centric crisis in the sense that globally, this pandemic will wreak havoc on a developing nation that we can't even begin to fathom. And one of the most important things that any developing economy needs is access to energy at scale. So I hope that as rich North Americans, no matter what our current circumstances, we will turn our face to the needs of the world and what i think is our shared obligation to participate in in helping the response and recovery and ultimate not rebuilding but first build of thriving economies where humans can reach their potential uh, that is our shared opportunity in in the wake of this to share with generosity, all the blessings that we have.
0: And as I say at the end of every episode, but I really mean it now, just high level stuff that we heard right there. That that's just awesome. And uh, you know, appreciate everybody on this panel who's taking time another busy day to be with us, but I think we're about out of time. So I'm going to let everybody who's listening get back to work. Thank you guys for checking out the energy 360 network by Intercom. We will see you guys next time.